1: You're listening to the Korea File. I'm Andre Goulet. The Korea File is a monthly podcast exploring Korean society, culture, and politics, and highlighting critical, independent voices you won't find anywhere else. Go to Patreon.com/slash/TheKoreaFile and throw me a few dollars a month if you can. On this episode. Looking back, and in spite of all the high hopes a lot of us were feeling, the Trump-Kim summit was probably dead before it even began late last month at the five-star colonial-era Metropole Hotel in downtown Hanoi. But who pulled the trigger? What was the poison pill? And where do the United States and North Korea need to go from here to guarantee a lasting peace? Joining me to explore all this and more is speechwriter and former U.S. State Department diplomat, Mintaro Oba. We last spoke early last summer on episode 75 in the run-up to the Trump-Kim Singapore summit. Hi, Mintaro. Hi, Andre. From the outside, it kind of looks like the demise of the summit came as a complete surprise to nearly everyone involved, and the hype surrounding the event really can't be exaggerated. Vietnamese street vendors were hawking t-shirts with Kim Jong Un and Donald Trump's faces. Thousands of lanyard-wearing journalists from around the world were stumbling around the streets, sweating in the heat and the smog. Brand new signs were everywhere in the city declaring Hanoi, the city for peace. No one saw it coming, did they?
2: I I certainly would agree with that. There are people on both sides of the spectrum, people expecting good results, people expecting bad results. but. I don't think anyone was expecting no result whatsoever,
1: right. I mean, Trump flew more than thirteen thousand kilometers. It was twenty hours on the on the Air Force One to arrive in Hanoi on february twenty sixth Kim Jong un traveled forty five hundred kilometers by train from Pyongyang to the china Vietnam border uh, completed his journey by limousine to Hanoi that's sixty hours. It's not much. It's just a casual journey for the uh, leader of North Korea. And it seems like everyone involved on both the U.S. and North Korean sides, not to mention Vietnam's government, who spent millions on hosting the event, they were all anticipating a smooth, successful summit. But that's not what happened. So, So catch us up on the events. Give us a summary of what happened in Hanoi in late February.
2: Well, you know, there have been competing accounts. Initially, we understood that there were differences between the United States and North Korea on the extent of sanctions relief that the United States could provide in return for uh, North Korea closing their Yongbyon nuclear site. Um, and that seemed to in degrees to be the interpretation the United States and North Korea were both offering. In subsequent days and weeks, we heard from National Security Advisor John Bolton and others that uh, the issue had been the United States had offered sort of a grand bargain to the North Koreans uh, give up your entire nuclear program, inclu- including chemical and biological weapons, and the United States would be willing to completely lift sanctions. And so it's, it remains unclear which interpretation is correct, but, uh, if, if it's true that the United States initially withdrew because of differences over the amount of sanctions relief, that is less concerning than if the United States offered something overly ambitious that was never going to go well at the negotiating table.
1: Mm-hmm. And it it all came like such a surprise. So I want to shine the spotlight on what a lot of people think was the culprit. Uh, you write that, for almost as long as John Bolton has been in official foreign policy roles, smart diplomats have been trying to outmaneuver him. You recently wrote in nknews.org and explained that if diplomacy with North Korea is to succeed, John Bolton has to go. You write about how dangerous the now national security advisor has been in the U.S. foreign policymaking world for like decades now and that North Korea rises above all the others as the area of foreign policy where Bolton's influence has the potential to become most dangerous. So, this guy probably killed the summit. So, tell us who's John Bolton and what's been his career in American diplomacy?
2: Well, I like to characterize John Bolton as the little finger of American foreign policy. This is the character in Game of Thrones who is uh, really the principal catalyst for a lot of the chaos and destruction that happens in the series. And in fact, he uses Chaos has an opportunity to advance himself and advance his goals, uh, but the end results are always very destructive. And that's, I think, a quick summary of what John Bolton's long career in American foreign policy has been like. And um, he has served in various roles. He, um, he served in roles at the Department of Justice in the Reagan administration. He was Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs during the George H. W. Bush administration. Um, He was Under Secretary of State for Arms Control and International Security in the George W. Bush administration and a U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. And in each of these roles, he brought a very muscular understanding of American sovereignty and a very unilateral approach based on uh, rejecting you know, international institutions and international law in favor of U.S. unilateralism, and even a willingness to preemptively use military force very aggressively. And so that has been the characteristic of John Bolton's foreign policy, and he's been a supporter of withdrawing us from international organizations, weakening their their roles, a the war in Iraq, and just the general bold use of military force. So that's. And that's a quick summary of his role. And
1: in fact, he was the ambassador to the United Nations, a uh, organization he doesn't think should exist. I I like the little finger analogy. I guess that makes Trump uh, King Jeffrey. Uh, After wrapping up his years in the George W. Bush administration, Bolton was finally completely free to speak his mind. He was liberated. He published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal entitled The Legal Case for Striking North Korea First. The North Korean news agency, the KCNA, released a statement in 2003 calling Bolton human scum and a bloodsucker. That Sounds about right. You say it's no wonder then that to close observers of North Korea policy, serious doubts immediately arose that Bolton could could be a constructive part of the Trump administration's bilateral diplomatic process with North Korea. And that fear has been largely realized. What role does Bolton play in the U.S. government today specifically as a national security advisor to the Donald Trump White House? Well,
2: that's exactly right. I think we were all very apprehensive about what role John Bolton could play both on North Korea and on broader U.S. foreign policy because he has such a long record, and uh, it's a long, destructive record that's very consistent. Um, Nevertheless, I think we were willing to give John Bolton a chance. He's now been National Security Advisor for nearly a year, and it seems that every time he has intervened in North Korea policy, it has indeed been very problematic. Um, Early in his tenure as a national security advisor, he raised this idea of the Libya model, um, which most people think is completely unworkable uh, as an approach to North Korean denuclearization. And now we see that he has uh, massively raised expectations for progress with North Korea and uh, is offering very ambitious, unworkable proposals at the negotiating table that are harming the U.S. public image and U.S. leverage with North Korea,
1: and those who those who disagree with what the so-called Libya model aren't appreciating the fact that Libya is now a broken country and has slave markets. I mean, that that seems like a success to to many. Bolton's belligerence has laid the groundwork for much tougher line from North Korea. And Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs Cho Sun, he briefed the press this month that. Quote, we have neither the intention to compromise with the U.S. in any form, nor much less the desire or plan to conduct this kind of negotiation. And he hinted that North Korea was considering ending its moratorium on nuclear and missile tests. Did that official reaction from the DPRK surprise you? Uh,
2: it, It was not particularly surprising. I think that the way John Bolton presented North Korea policy in the aftermath of the Hanoi summit created the conditions for the North Koreans to react in this calculated but negative way. The the most pragmatic, useful course of action for the US after the Hanói summit would have been to claim the high ground, to define itself as the actor playing in good faith, willing to be flexible, willing to offer some partial sanctions relief and uh, therefore putting pressure on North Korea, not the United States, take more constructive actions. Instead, because John Bolton has characterized U.S.-North Korea policy in such ambitious, inflexible terms, it really gives North Korea the room to put the onus on us, to put pressure on us. And that's exactly what the North Koreans did here.
1: Mm-hmm. Chosun-hee also praised the mysteriously wonderful chemistry between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, but criticized Bolton and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo for the, quote, atmosphere of hostility and mistrust. You must have seen this footage of Trump and Kim hanging out together. They do share a mysteriously wonderful kind of chemistry, don't they? And I'm not really being facetious. They actually appear to get along really well. What do you think is behind that chemistry?
2: I think both leaders share a very personal commitment to diplomacy. They have both taken personal risks to undertake summit diplomacy that is unprecedented. They have attached their names to it, and their reputations uh, as statesmen and as deal makers largely ride on the success of this process. So they have some unique things in common there. And so I think both President Trump and Kim Jong-un come to the table wanting to make progress, but very much in accordance with their interpretation of their interests. It's not surprising that the North Koreans have pointed this out, have praised this while attacking Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and John Bolton. Um, it It's a tactic that that makes sense and allows the North Koreans to express their displeasure, their discontent, without... Uh, harming the personal relationship with President Trump.
1: Back to Bolton and the U.S. demands that came on the second day of the summit on February 27th. You say that the effect of placing these unmeetable demands has been to squander a strong U.S. negotiating position heading into Hanoi. Washington's now on the defensive. What can you tell us about that?
2: Well, I think we have to look back to what the message was from the United States heading into Hanoi. Hanoi, Um, special representative for North Korea policy, Steve Deegan, gave a speech at Stanford University in the lead up that sounded a very positive, flexible tone um, and really encouraged commentators to think that there might be room for progress between the United States and North Korea. Um, In addition, there were leaks uh, preceding the summit that suggested the U.S. was putting some interesting things on the negotiating table. Uh, Korean War peace declaration, uh, the possibility of establishing liaison offices between the United States and North Korea, even some partial sanctions really. So the net effect of all of this messaging before the summit was to make the United States look proactive and look flexible and create some optimism for progress. Now what happened immediately after the summit was President Trump gave a press conference initially explaining that there was no deal because the North Koreans had um, asked for total sanctions relief, basically. And this accomplished something very unusual, very rare in U.S. foreign policy, which was to put the North Koreans on the defensive. And we saw the North Koreans, for the first time, really have to actually defend their negotiating position. They called a press conference while they were still in Hanoi after there was no deal, and they explained their side of the story. They explained that they had asked for partial sanctions relief that was equivalent to measures in five of the UN Security Council resolutions applying to North Korea. And so there was an opportunity here to cast North Korea as the one acting in bad faith, um, and, and there's an opportunity to show the North Koreans by walking away with no deal, that the United States was still interested in negotiations but was not desperate for a deal. So there was a great opportunity here to better the U.S. public image and increase U.S. leverage at the negotiating table. And it was really... John Bolton's commentary after all of that happened that squandered that opportunity.
1: Yeah. And after the summit's collapse, he was all over the U.S. Sunday morning political television programs, defining the Trump administration's public position on the summit. For listeners outside the U.S., what role do the Sunday politics shows play in setting political discourse in the country? We're, We're talking about shows like Meet the Press, Face the Nation, Fox News Sunday.
2: Well, you know, I don't think the Sunday political shows are widely watched by the average American, but they are almost like a Sunday church service for Washingtonians. Um, they allow us to hear the narrative directly from administration officials and politicians and If they say something interesting or unique, that really drives discussion heading into the the week after that so these These Sunday shows are really important, and that's why you've seen um, say Secretary of State Mike Pompeo go on the Sunday shows in the past. So it was a little surprising for many of us to see Pompeo be uh, practically silent in the aftermath of North Korea summit and cede that role to John Bolton.
1: Well, hearing you talk about this, I, I neglected to mention that we're, we're speaking, uh, you're, you're in Washington right now. And it really speaks to this insularity that the, uh, the the political system has from within Washington. How frustrating must that be for President Moon Jae-in and uh, his colleagues in the Blue House in Seoul to just know that everything's happening, revolving around this really myopic kind of uh, political conversation in the United States?
2: Well, undoubtedly, President Moon and Uh, other South Korean officials are frustrated by the way Washington works. There is, I think, a general perception that most of Washington is negatively inclined toward the North Korea diplomatic process and very skeptical and is a key driver of the inflexible U.S. negotiating position. So certainly that must be Of concern to President Moon.
1: Well, okay. So Bolton's comments seemed to suggest that President Trump had had offered Kim Jong Un, like, basically, a grand bargain that was impossible to achieve—an accord in which North Korea would completely dismantle its nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons to receive comprehensive sanctions relief. That's not a good deal for North Korea. You say that this kind of ambitious approach was essentially the poison pill uh, for the current North Korea diplomatic process. Why is that?
2: Well, the biggest enemy of progress with North Korea is overly high expectations. We need to understand that denuclearization, if it happens at all, is going to be a long and complicated road, that uh, it's going to be very difficult and that the North Koreans take uh, the value of their credible nuclear deterrent and the leverage they get from that very seriously. So if we're going to make any progress with North Korea at all, you know, we need to to start with small but meaningful steps that gradually develop US leverage to ask for bigger things and when you put a giant deal on the table that the North Koreans can't possibly accept that that creates a real roadblock in negotiations and really paints the US as Acting in that thing.
1: Mm-hmm. and it's this this idea of a deal making president who who wants to go and like kind of get the get the home run in Hanoi, but the problem is is that he's not you know, he's not a coherent person. His White House is run chaotically, which leaves space for someone like Bolton to just walk in and murder the whole thing. Uh, this was all really a big shift to from what had initially appeared to be the problem in Hanoi, which is that the US and North Korea negotiating teams were really close to a deal that would have included byun some sanctions relief, and maybe even the establishment of liaison offices. And I think most importantly, the point that a lot of Korean and American peace activists were really excited about a Korean War peace declaration. A lot of people really thought this was going to happen. How huge would a peace declaration have been? This would have been the home run Trump was looking for. The U.S. and North Korea have been at war for 70 years.
2: Right. Well, it's important to distinguish legally between a peace declaration and a peace treaty. Um, And the peace treaty would, of course, formally and legally uh, end the war. But it would also require uh, China to be at the table since it was one of the parties to the armistice and a key player in the war. Peace declaration is more symbolic, but it it would create a a significant positive atmosphere in U.S.-North Korea relations. It would be very unprecedented, and it might create the room for further progress down the line. So that would certainly have been a a meaningful gesture.
1: And didn't didn't uh, wasn't there a massive adjustment to the war games uh, that that the United States and South Korea hold every year in the wake of the summit?
2: That's right. Uh, The U.S. essentially got rid of those, which was which is surprising since it walked away from the, the summit with no deal. So,
1: yeah, and so there was some analysis that President Moon Jae-in would have been just hugely frustrated with, with the result of the summit. According to Chad O'Carroll, the CEO of the Korea Risk Group and an editor at NK News, the South Korean government likely won't be able to pursue more than a kind of ceremonial inter-Korean cooperation for the foreseeable future, but eliminating the war games is a really big uh, step forward for inter-Korean relations. Kim Uy-kyum, Moon's spokesperson at At the Blue House said in a statement that Seoul regrets the fact that Trump and Kim couldn't reach an agreement. But in a sign that South Korea may become more involved in the U.S. discussions with the North, apparently Trump asked President Moon in a telephone call to actively mediate his dialogue with Kim. So, do you think we should expect to see President Moon hold another summit with Kim? Like, this is what happened once already when U.S. talks with the North looked like they were on the verge of collapse in 2018.
2: Well, we can certainly expect that South Korean President Moon, in keeping with his longstanding pattern, will actively try to drive the process forward, will take the initiative to create momentum in inter-Korean relations and U.S.-North Korea diplomacy. That being said, the negative atmosphere atmosphere between the U.S. and North Korea is a major roadblock to inter-Korean relations as well. So I'm not sure that the North Koreans would agree to have a, another summit between President mm-hmm. Moon and Kim Jong-un anytime soon. So that mm-hmm. that's certainly a concern. Maybe the North Koreans would accept uh, special envoys from President Moon, and that could create the basis for some...
1: Well, and to that point, and wrapping up, you write that it's impossible to overstate how significant a tactical blunder Bolton has created for the U.S., and that nearly one year after becoming national security advisor, his interventions in North Korea policy and his public statements defending it have almost uniformly served to make the United States look unreasonable and inflexible, reducing U.S. leverage at the negotiating table and making it harder to secure consensus in the region for continued sanctions enforcement. He also basically has blown up, you know, South Korea's very good intentions about uh, inter-Korean, a renaissance of inter-Korean relations. You say that if President Trump wants his North Korea diplomacy to succeed, the most important thing he can do right now is to fire John Bolton. But, you know, in my view, Trump's not a wise man and doesn't have a lot of wise support behind him. And his foreign policy priorities, like, Almost everything else in his administration are largely completely off the rails. So to your mind, what are the chances that we're going to see him do the right thing and distance himself or even fire Bolton?
2: Well, I compared John Bolton to Littlefinger earlier and you compared President Trump to King Joffrey. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, President Trump is petulant, unpredictable, full of himself, but uh, John Bolton is uh, savvy and a great manipulator and takes advantage of his proximity to President Trump, and so far he has managed to survive and flourish in, in a way that his predecessor, H.R. McMaster, has not. That being said, because President Trump's personality is so, so vain and so chaotic, um, I think there's a possibility that uh, he would react poorly to John Bolton taking more of a public profile. Uh, President Trump loves to be center stage. He loves to be the one on TV. He loves to be the one defining the narrative. And the more John Bolton is the one doing this, um, the the weaker President Trump looks. And so that may be the one catalyst for any uh, diminishment of John Bolton's role. But for now, he seems safe.
1: We all love living in unpredictable times. Mintaro Oba is a former U.S. State Department diplomat specializing in the Koreas. You can find his piece, Why, If Diplomacy is to Succeed with North Korea, John Bolton Must Go, at nknews.org. Mintaro, thanks for speaking with The File. My pleasure. been listening to episode 82 of the Korea File. follow mintaro on twitter at mintaro oba i'm on there too at andre margulay music on this episode is courtesy of creative commons this podcast is produced and hosted on a 100 volunteer basis so a couple of dollars a month goes a long way towards keeping it on the air if you can afford to support this show and to help subsidize it for listeners who can't go to patreon.com slash the koreafile become a monthly patron i'll be back in mid-april with the first in a series of collaborative episodes with the seoul-based korea branch of history and culture organization the royal asiatic society until then i'm andre goulet thanks for listening
0: don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket